0: Hey everybody, welcome again to F This Movie, the official podcast of FThisMovie.com. Movie love for movie lovers. My name is Patrick Bromley and I'm super excited for this week's show because for the first time ever it's coming to you from a different coast. We're on the west coast, baby,
1: here. Have a joint.
0: (laughs) Uh, We are going to be talking about our favorite California movies which means I'm joined by everyone's favorite Californian, J.B. Aloha. J.B. is very kindly letting our family stay in his house this week, Uh, and so we are recording from his new place in California. Well, new, by which I mean a year, I guess.
1: I'm putting my ear to the USB
0: mic, and yes,
1: I can hear the ocean. Oh, very nice.
0: Uh, So we're going to talk about our favorite... California movies, what else could be more appropriate while we're both in California together?
1: And these are movies that capture the essence of California. It's not enough that they're just set in California, because when I was perusing the internet for inspiration, I was seeing all kinds of lists that made no sense, including you can't make this up, favorite California movies. Okay. The Godfather. Sure. I don't I automatically associate We're it with in California. New York. Yeah. Michael gets sent to Italy. Right. They wind up in Vegas. Right. But isn't there a scene in a vineyard? You know what it is? It's the scene with... Spoiler alert. <laughs> it's the scene where uh, Robert Duvall tries to get Johnny Fontaine
0: the job. There that's, you go. That's ten minutes. Come oh, on. Favorite California movies. You can do better than that. Uh, J-Bones, you go first.
1: Okay. Uh, these are in ascending
0: order. Oh, you ranked yours? Yes, I did. You guys need to understand how quickly we put this together. I not
1: only ranked them so that it goes from very California to ultra Californian, (laughs) a movie that says everything, but also I tried uh, to uh, cast my net wide because God knows some brand X websites will have you believe that movies are only five years old.
0: (laughs) I didn't rank mine, but I did pair mine as double features, so I actually came up with 10 or 12. Okay. But I'm only going to do five because I don't want us to overlap. And then at the end, I'll read my runners-up or whatever. That's terrific because besides the main five, I have some also
1: ranked that I thought I would discuss at the end. And my prediction is your double features at the end – and my also-rans, that's where we're going we're gonna to see okay. uh, bleed over okay. like crazy. Uh, my number five California movie, and again, this is based on me being the ultimate expert on California living. Right. After 51 weeks of living here. Next week, I celebrate my one-year anniversary as a Californian. What are you going
0: to do to celebrate?
1: Well, I'll tell you. I'm going to build... A hot tub out of driftwood. Sure. I'm going to take off my pants, climb up a tree, and learn to play the flute. <laughs> and I'm going to buy a big bag of edibles. Wow.
0: I would do that first and then see how the other two go.
1: I've heard about edibles because whenever I drive somewhere, because in California it's the law, you, you're you not allowed to walk anywhere. You have to drive. I pass an enormous billboard for a dispensary called Skunk Masters.
0: Edibles are when you want to fuck your mom, right?
1: That's, that's the weirdest pun I've heard today. <laughs> and we've been exchanging puns at a furious rate because we're with the kids all day. Wow. Yeah. You have an edible complex. <laughs> you need to slow down. So my number five film is a film that I'm betting, guessing no one in our listening audience has seen because it's largely forgotten. If you can dig it up somehow, I recommend it because A, it says a lot about California, and B, talk about a time capsule. It's the film Serial from 1980. No, with Martin Mull? Yes. Yeah. Directed by Bill Persky, who did mostly television. But uh, it's Martin Mull, Tuesday World. Uh, Christopher Lee mentions it in his autobiography as being one of the first times... He was allowed to play a normal human being with an American accent. And basically Serial is about a whole bunch of people who are experiencing the culture shift from the 60s to the 70s to the 80s. And as we go from more standard moral structures to more open Structures, uh, Group marriage and orgies and other things and people who are trying to maintain their relationships. Uh, Tommy Smothers is in it as this religious figure named Spike. And it's uh, full of character actors who we all know and love. Uh, Bill Macy's in it, Sally Kellerman's in it, as I said, Christopher Lee. It doesn't get shown anymore at repertory theaters or on cable or on commercial TV. I didn't check to see if it was available on a little shiny disc, but um, I recommend it. My guess is it might be on the YouTube machine. <laughs> Patrick's
0: checking. Uh, from 1980, you can rent it. There you go. You can rent it, but it's not streaming
1: anywhere. You can rent it. And um, again, I've always thought Martin Mull was underrated. Um. A couple weeks ago, we went to the last bookstore, which is another great reason to live in California. And I bought a. You only ago. have
0: one bookstore.
1: I'm sorry, that's, that's the not name. A great. Oh, stop. You, reason to live in that's California. The name of the bookstore. Oh, all right. In fact, I was watching this uh, new music video that someone put together for George Harrison's "My Sweet Lord" with Fred Armisen and a whole bunch of guest stars. Check it out on YouTube. And at one point. They go to the last bookstore, and I'm watching the music video, and I turned to Jan, and I said, weren't we just there? That's very distinctive. In any case, um, at the last bookstore, I bought a used vinyl copy of Martin Mull's Greatest Hits. And it's delightful, because he used to do this little musical act where he would play funny
0: songs. This is before Fernwood tonight. Wow, yeah. I don't think I even knew about that phase of his career. In
1: fact, at one point... A whole bunch of people you know were going to put together a film that was a comedy that was a history, a comedy history of the United States. Okay. And Martin Mull and Steve Martin wrote a piece together that was supposed to be aboard Christopher Columbus's ship. And all of the men break out into this song that they wrote together called Men. Men
0: what happened to this movie that we're never going to see?
1: And through the years, I've heard other little pieces of it because either Martin Mull or Steve Martin recorded or talked about another piece that they had worked on. Um, If you have the YouTube machine, type in men, Martin Mull, Steve Martin. It's a really funny song. I'd sing it for you, but I'll spare you. (laughs) It's late,
0: even for California. It is. Um, I, I paired mine up into sort of different genres so my first pick is a horror movie and i was trying to think of what horror movie has like california as being very important to its tone and its setting and so i went with the lost boys uh even though it's a fictionalized town of Uh, I just knew this the other day because Jan and I were talking about it. There's the famous last line. Santa Carla.
1: And clearly by choosing that, they're making allusions to three towns that really exist. Right. They're talking about Santa Paula or Santa Clarita or Santa Clara. Clearly
0: it's an amalgam of Santa Cruz, isn't that a place? Yeah. Um, But this idea of these young punk vampires who pray on the boardwalk every night and uh go to carnivals and you know this idea of forever retaining your youth as being important to the California mythos the <laughs> California mythos yeah exactly um I, I mean it's not a movie that's like it's 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 making fun of California a little bit, I think. Even Edward Herman's like hipster wardrobe as his video store character. Uh, There's some stuff that's, like, critical of California, but for the most part, it's just sort of like a celebration of what a collection of weirdos the state is. Well, I was going to say
1: that that is what California is. Right.
0: Weirdos and vampires.
1: There's really, if I can put in a word for my new adopted state, Hmm. there's something very touching about... Every outcast coming to one place and saying, we don't agree on anything, (laughs) but we can agree on this. We'll all live together, and and we'll make it work.
0: And for the most part, right? And
1: that's what Christmas is all about.
0: (laughs) I don't remember the exact line from Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, but Shane Black has that great line about California where it was like, it's like someone picked up the U.S. from one end, and all the same people held on, or something. <laughs> and, you know, for, from from the New York end, and all the same people held on. I don't remember. It, you know, it's much funnier when Shane Black writes it, not when I butcher the shit out of it. But uh, Lost Boys is my first movie.
1: Okay, my second uh, is called L.A. Story. A little on the nose, I know. But no greater authority than Steve Martin um, wrote it. He stars in it, but he also wrote it. And um, I'm beginning to pay particular attention to the movies that he not only starred in, but that he wrote. Yeah. Because I think people tend to forget what a good writer he is. Mm -hmm. Uh, Here, of course, I'm thinking of Bowfinger, which is amazing Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. three different reasons. And was sort of largely ignored until fairly recently when people started rediscovering it.
0: I think it goes back to this thing of 99 being this amazing year for movies and a sort of, you know, quote-unquote middle-of-the-road comedy gets lost in the shuffle, even though it's like, this is Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy, and it's really smart, and it's really funny. Although I did show it in a class a year or two ago, and a lot of the stuff about Heather Graham hasn't dated well.
1: Uh, I could see that. Um, I still remember the first time I saw it, and obviously I've seen it a a boatload of times since then, But and maybe this is something about me, because obviously humor is subjective. The scene where Eddie Murphy is forced to cross the highway, (laughs) that is just one of the funniest damn things I've ever seen. And, you know, people discount what a good actor Eddie Murphy is, but you want to talk about expressing terror. Right. Um, he's being asked to cross an eight-lane highway, <laughs> and he's being told that every car is being driven by a stunt driver. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's, it's I don't want to do the dialogue, right. but it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Um, so I don't remember what else Mick Jackson
0: directed. I just heard about him recently, and but I was like, why, oh, I didn't put that, that together, that why, he also directed...
1: Why does that name ring a bell?
0: No, it's going to be something that is going to blow your mind. It's going to be something that's obscure. Oh, a Volcano, which Adam and I did a podcast on a couple months ago. Um, well, I like, talk about range. Wow. The, the Bodyguard. Wow. Uh, I'm trying to think of his other... He's done a lot of... TV, it looks like. The Tuesdays with Maury movie. Oh, Clean Slate. That was the other movie that I was trying to think of. Which is the movie where Dana Carvey has no... Oh, yeah. Long-term memory. Yeah, I remember. And the dog runs into things. Um, The reason why I included L.A. Story
1: on the list is because I've only seen L.A. Story once. Uh, It looks like that was 32 years ago. Yeah. And... Two things have stuck with me since I saw it, and that's a pretty good average for 32 years in a drug addicted, brain addled, 61 year old brain. Number one, um, Steve Martin is dating a younger woman, which is disturbingly a theme in several of these (laughs) Martin movies. I'm thinking Shop Girl, uh, which which he also also wrote. wrote. But Steve Martin is dating Sarah Jessica Parker, and one of their first dates is getting high colonics. And he does this bit when they're done where he does a funny walk, and it's very, very funny. And it also reminds me that if you're over a certain age, you should get a colonoscopy. This is nothing to laugh at, but the Steve Martin connection is that because they would like to be healthy, Steve Martin and Martin Short have a ritual where every two years they invite some friends over and they have a poker game. But what they're really doing is the colonoscopy
0: prep. Okay.
1: All together at Steve's house where there are plenty of bathrooms so everyone can have their own. So they're all drinking the gallon of liquid. They're all playing poker. They're all excusing themselves from the hand. And then the next day they all go in and get their colonoscopies together. Because they're buddies, and we want to stay alive, and that is stuck with me. But the number one thing that stuck in my mind about La Story, spoiler alert, is that um, Steve Martin plays a television weatherman in San Diego. I don't know how many of you have ever been to San Diego, but San Diego has some of the weirdest weather anywhere on the planet. Every day is exactly the same. Right. It's gray the gray burns off. It's in the low it's in the high 70s or low 80s and then the next day lather rinse repeat. Steve Martin's weatherman in the film is fired because he starts pre-taping his weather forecast.
0: <laughs> and it takes the station weeks to figure it out. <laughs>
1: that is a very worthy california joke
0: i really need to revisit that movie because i don't think i've seen it since the early 90s and i know i was drawn to it at the time because ebert gave it like a four-star review and i liked steve martin and i trusted roger ebert and i watched it and there were a few jokes that jumped out at me the stuff with the billboards talking to him I'm also, not now, the billboards, the construction signs. I'm also not just remembering the scene where they all order coffee. Which is what the trailer was. Yeah. Which is why maybe that sticks out in my head. But I remember most of it, I was like, huh? what is it?" But I was too young for it, and I couldn't appreciate all the digs at California that Steve Martin was making.
1: I was looking um, for something that captured what I took to be the, the spirit of the state.
0: Yeah. Um... I forgot what I was gonna say. It was something about Steve Martin and Martin Short. But
1: oh, we're well. eagerly awaiting the third season of Only Murders in the Building. The first two seasons were very entertaining. In I fact, ne- I never even finished the first season. <laughs> um this morning people were shaking their heads that uh Martin Short got an Emmy nomination, Steve Martin didn't, and someone was wagging their tongue that they really felt Selena Gomez deserved an Emmy nomination. But she did not get one. She did not get one. But again, we're now in a, may I say, era... Era. ...of too much quality TV. Sure. There's no time to watch it all. Right. But Only Murders in the Building is very much worth everyone's time.
0: All right. Uh, My next... What's my next genre? I'll go with uh, L.A. Crime Films. And I'm going with an obvious pick. You went with LA Story. My obvious pick is William Friedkin's To Live and Die mm. in LA, uh, which is not the obvious pick that you thought I was going to make. I, I thought I knew what I saw it, was it be. on your face. Um, to Live and Die in LA is so fucking awesome. It sure is. <laughs> it's so good. It's a great cop movie, it's a great chase movie. Um, it does things I don't want to spoil because I think it's still a little bit underseen. Um, but it does something specifically that I remember I had to rewind it. I was watching it on VHS the first time I saw it and I had to rewind it because I didn't think you could do that in a movie. I'll tell you after we record, but, uh, I was so knocked out by the balls that Friedkin had to do what he does. Um it's sort of I know it it got sued, I think, by Michael Mann for ripping off the Miami Vice aesthetic. Aesthetic.
1: But you can't Right. It's like when they sued what's his name because it sounded too much like a Marvin Gaye song, but it wasn't recognizably any Martin Gay song. You can't oh, copy the Robin Thicke song? You can't copyright a style.
0: Right. You can
1: copyright a chord progression. Right. But, um... I feel like
0: he lost or settled.
1: Oh, Marvin Gaye's Day One.
0: Yeah. Yeah, which was... This is a dangerous <laughs> Weird precedent. precedent to set.
1: Um, if you rent or stream To Live and Die in L.A., you will discover why if you're going to get into the counterfeiting business, why you will need an industrial
0: dryer and poker chips. <laughs> I remember that from that Well, time. again, there's this amazing sequence in the middle of the movie where Willem Dafoe, step by step, makes counterfeit money and yeah. they just show you how to do it. I think legally they had to change just enough things that it wasn't a literal tutorial.
1: But it reminds us that Hitchcock was right we like to
0: watch someone who's good at their yes. job. Again, like, I remember one of the first movies I ever reviewed for DVD Verdict was this movie called Mac that John Turturro directed. And it's about John Turturro being a bricklayer. And there's this whole sequence where he just lays brick. And I remember writing in my review, like, it's cool to watch somebody do something that you've never seen done before. Yeah. And that is what I think of during that whole sequence of To Live and Die in L.A., during the sequence when Willem Dafoe is making the
1: counterfeit money, let me see, because I've also only seen that film once.
0: Oh, wow. Um,
1: is there a reason why at some point in the process
0: he has to change clothes
1: or get naked?
0: I feel like he gets naked. Because
1: the ink is on him or something? I there's don't a, remember. There's a specific reason that if he I think doesn't do this... Willem Dafoe and he's just a fucking weirdo. <laughs> Willem's naked in a lot of movies. Yeah.
0: Um, William Peterson is great and twitchy and 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 all hyped up on caffeine or drugs or speed or something. Uh, one of the all-time great car chases in a movie. You know, Friedkin's always given credit for French Connection,
1: and it's great, and it's become iconic. But I would argue that the chase into live and die in L.A. is actually better because of the... I don't want to give it
0: away. Right. There's a twist on a chase. It's extraordinary. It's like somebody sat down and said, well, I already made the greatest car chase ever. What could we do this time that's different? And somebody said... The protagonist (laughs) is blind. (laughs) Um, It is coming out on 4K because the Shout Factory disc, I think, is out of print. Um, But Kino Lorber is putting it out on 4K.
1: Kino has been putting out a bunch of stuff on 4K, and uh, kudos, because we just received word that Olive Films, out of St. Charles, Illinois, yeah. is no more. Yeah. They're out of business.
0: I know, but Kino's picking up all the Olive stuff. Um,
1: there are several boutique labels that are showing us that I. Th- this morning I was thinking about this. I was comparing it to vinyl, and People who make phonograph records finally figured it out and so that's now a going concern because someone figured out you're not selling music, Right. you're selling an object. Right. And I think the boutique video labels need to learn that too because all the ones that we really like, not only does the disc have bells and whistles, but it's an object. It comes with a poster or an
0: autograph or this or that or this. See, I don't like any of that stuff. I don't I don't want my discs to come with extra stuff. Well,
1: it adds to the cost. But if shelling out an extra five bucks for a Shout Factory poster gets me what they're putting out, mm-hmm. I'll just leave it folded
0: in the box. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's what I've done, too. Um. Somebody has picked up all the Code Red library, too. Like, I feel like that's gone to a couple different places because Severin is putting some stuff, some Code Red stuff out. Vinegar Syndrome, I think, is putting some Code Red stuff out. Um, And I'm, I'm fine because I don't have to rebuy that stuff. But it's right. just like, there's just so much coming out
1: now. Right. And this gives me hope that, like this might be a column in the next few months, that like the ten movies I've always dreamed of seeing, and I'm not talking about London After Midnight, Um, they have to come out, because they'll become the only films left. True. I'll give you one example. Okay, yes, please do. Can Hieronymus Merkin <laughs> ever forget Mercy Hump and Find True Happiness is my, is my white whale. Okay. You know it's going to happen. Why not now? <laughs> uh, if you're insatiably curious, you can
0: now watch the whole thing on YouTube illegally. Did you it's... write a column about it? I must have. I mean, I feel like I remember reading about it because you must have watched it, it in 10-minute chunks it, on YouTube. It back might when... have
1: been a column about white whales. Okay. That was one of them. Okay. But um, I'll give you a hint. Here's why you want to see the film. There's a 100 reasons. <laughs> Milton Burrow Play Satan. Okay. Enough said. Uh, Joan Collins cited the film, which she stars in, in her divorce settlement. She was married to Anthony Newley at the time. He wrote it and directed it. And is largely naked in most of it. Because, like Because it's rated X. Um she she said the movie was one of the reasons they broke up. So oh, and did I mention it's a musical featuring such immortal hits as Chalk and Cheese. Oh my gosh.
0: And am I thinking of the right guy with Anthony Newley, does he go on to star in the Garbage Pail Kids movie?
1: Yes, that okay. was one of his last films. <laughs> oh god. And I I know I'm dating myself, but when I was a child, Anthony Newley was all over television. Most of you know him as Matthew Mugg in uh, Dr. Doolittle. And he also wrote all the songs in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory with his partner Leslie Brickus. But he first came to fame because he wrote a show called The Roar of the Grease Paint, the Smell of the Crowd that had this big hit song. And he sang. He recorded records. He was on variety shows in the 60s and 70s. And no one sang like Anthony Newley. I won't, I won't <laughs> insult you. Go on the YouTube machine and type Anthony Newley sings. And you'll, it'll take you to videos. And it's, it's, it's amazing. It's like, what is that? People thought this was entertaining. It's the weirdest thing on earth.
0: Every time Erica and I are watching a documentary or something, we'll see clips Of talk shows Dinosaur Whatever And I just will always say Like what the hell was TV In the 70s It was (laughs) You could be famous Just by Popping up on Talk shows And variety shows Well I was
1: going to say Why is he famous Oh he's on Hollywood Square Right But I thought the prerequisite (laughs) For being
0: on Hollywood Squares Is that you're a celebrity Right Oh no That's the one thing I liked About uh, that documentary About the Star Wars Holiday special It's not a great documentary, but they really stress, like, no, context matters. And, like, to see this in the 70s when there were regularly these goofy variety specials, this wasn't as big a deal as it has become. Not at all.
1: And if you'd like proof of that, I believe it's fairly recent that this was posted. Paul Lynn, who was big on high... He was the middle square forever. Um, he's the father in Bye Bye Birdie. If you're looking for his actual cinematic bona fides, um, he he did a Halloween special, right? That was just the the weirdest goddamn thing on earth. And um, Kiss shows up, sure, and does two numbers, yeah. And a Witchy Poo from H and R Puff and stuff. It's it's like every TV executive was zonked out of their mind. On pot. Really good pot. So you see the conference table. Okay, Paul Lynn. He's got kind of an edge. Halloween. Halloween? (laughs) What do you think about when you think about Halloween? I think about witches. Have you seen that Saturday morning show with the the dragon? Isn't isn't there a witch? Isn't there a witch on H&R Puff and stuff? How about Paul Lynn marries the witch and Kiss plays the wedding?
0: (gasps) That sounds amazing.
1: Okay, that's... That's Friday
0: night, October 19th. Okay, what's next? What if it was Paul Lynn who pitched it and he was like, Hey guys, I've got a great idea for a special.
1: In this show, I get married.
0: <laughs> Kiss plays <wedding. sighs> the
1: I think it's still up if, you're, if you can't sleep some night. It's a... Uh, an hour minus commercials and it's just uh, I believe Florence Henderson shows up
0: well of course
1: if I'm remembering correctly Yeah, I've only watched it once but and it's very hard to surprise or shock me I watched that entire thing with my mouth
0: open. <laughs> and I grew up in the 70s right
1: I was like holy shit
0: what was TV
1: corporations bought advertising time on this right Because, A, they knew people would watch it, and B, they wanted to be associated (laughs) with this. So when you said, hmm, I'm thirsty, I want a Coke, because Coke helped Paul Lynn (laughs) get married to the members of KISS.
0: Uh, We are at your number three.
1: Okay, this choice is a little bit on the nose, but um, I love this film very much. And when it first came out, I saw it multiple times in multiple formats, and it sort of became this fun thing of, today I will see it in 70 millimeter, and then I will go and see it in IMAX and see if there's a difference, and then the 4K will come out. This with-
0: is our first crossover.
1: Yeah. Um, but A, I taught film study for decades, and B, I now live in California. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood captures two things about hollywood uh, that are antithetical but they're always there obviously hollywood is in california and it's a dream factory and most movies idealize what it's like to make movies but i think once upon a time in hollywood presents what it's really Mm -hmm. like to make movies and then of course there's the dark side of this special place where everyone comes thinking that they're going to do something and some people don't and wind up doing other things. Um, Obviously, it's an extraordinary film five different ways, but it does capture sort of the exaltation and the desperation of Hollywood. It also very, very nicely talks about something that Serial gets into as well. Rick Dalton is really the last vestige of old Hollywood. And a lot of what that movie is about is about him not wanting to change for new Hollywood, which unfortunately in the film is represented by the Manson family.
0: Right. Um, There's something about the way that Tarantino writes and Margot Robbie plays Sharon Tate... That, to me, is like the ultimate California girl. Mm. Um, I love the tour of all the locations that you get in the movie. Well, the Playboy Mansion scene is just...
1: Boy, I'm so glad that they give Tarantino money to realize Mm -hmm. the vision. Because Mm -hmm. if you look at the location, the costumes, the whole concept, then the camera moves over and there's that whole Steve McQueen thing going on it's nuts
0: um no I'm I'm a little bit obsessed with that movie and it I have to thank it because and Tarantino has done this multiple times in the past where his movie is my jumping off point to explore all this other cinema
1: I remember when Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out I was getting these texts from Patrick have you seen Ice Station Zero
0: <laughs> do I need to own Krakatoa you <laughs> that, was, that was the one that was the one
1: uh, that montage when the lights are going on, um, all over Hollywood, and we see all the theater yeah. marquees, is magic, and it obviously makes me wish that the Cinerama Dome would reopen.
0: It still might, according to what I hear. But oh my god! Yeah. Um, all right. Well, that was my that was my one. So I'll pick my double feature pick. Uh, which is like modern auteurs doing LA period pieces. So the flip side of my Once Upon a Time in Hollywood pick was Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza, which I think is also uh, very much a sort of love letter to growing up in Hollywood in the, in in LA in the 1970s. Um, even though it's about Gary Gertzman, sort of loosely. Uh, it You can feel how much of Paul Thomas Anderson is in there. Um, again, lots of great locations. Uh, there's the amazing Bradley Cooper sequence in the middle of the movie. Which I wish there was more of. More Bradley Cooper? Well, because
1: in the picture credits at the end, there's that tantalizing shot that's not in the film itself that makes me want to see. Right. The extended gas station sequence (laughs) that features the tomahawks.
0: Well, it's like... I remember seeing it the first time in the theater and just not knowing what was going to happen, like what this character is capable of, even though he's playing a real guy. Like, we know that they're not going to have John Peters really start killing people, but part of you is like, I don't know, could he?
1: And I'm... Obviously I'm taken with the whole film. In fact, a week ago I just rewatched it because oh, nice. I got a hanker in. Yeah. And it accomplished that thing that great films often do. I'm rewatching it. I think I had seen it 3 times before and this was the 4th. I could not remember the order of the sequences. Sure. And the amount of time each sequence took in my mind was way off from what the actual film was. My memory of it I find that really good films do that, that they will surprise you, and that it's not this order of sequence that you can memorize. Yeah, for sure. But, um... John Peters, John Peters, John Peters. Oh, the other thing I really love is uh, I am not a fan of Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley. I've spoken about this and may have even written a column on it. But he filmed Nightmare Alley in two pieces. I believe... Oh, he did the first sequence, and then they took time off, a long time off, and then they went back and they finished it, which might be why the first hour is much better than the second hour. Anyway, my point is, during the break, that's when Bradley Cooper filmed his John Peters stuff in Licorice Pizza. Interesting. And uh, that's better. <laughs> and, and obviously, if, if you love Nightmare Alley, you're allowed, And um, but you should obviously check out the original, because one of the reasons I was so disappointed by the remake is that I'm just a, a crazy Fallout fan for the original with Tyrone Power.
0: And that's another movie I showed in class a year or two ago. The original? Yes. And your students' reaction? They were not totally into it. Um, I've only seen the Del Toro version once, and I remember rewatching the original and being like, "It's actually pretty similar." Oh yeah. Except the ways that it departs are kind of bad.
1: Well, it's a lot more explicit
0: right. about certain things. Um. And why did Defoe have to be naked during the geek monologue? He's not naked. I know that. I'm trying to figure out what you're...
1: um, I know that, like the Alan Ladd Great Gatsby, which we were talking about before the podcast, Alan Ladd wanted to film Great Gatsby. The studio did not want to film Great Gatsby. Tyrone Power wanted to do Nightmare Alley. The studio did not want to do Nightmare Alley. I believe it played for a week, and it didn't do well, and the studio brought it back, and then it became impossible to see.
0: Until when?
1: Fairly, it, it was dark for longer than you think. Okay. I, I still remember the Chicago Film Society showed it. They have that showcase at the music box yeah. where they show stuff on yeah. film. Yeah. And that was the first time I had ever seen it, and that was maybe ten years ago. Oh, wow. It was hard to see, and obviously never showed up on TV and does that take place in California?
0: It might. It should.
1: (laughs) Although that's more about Carnival uh, atmosphere, not so much California. Speaking of California. Yes,
0: which we are. uh, My next
1: film I only recently discovered and I remember talking to Patrick after I saw it and I was like, oh my god I just saw this and I wrote a column on it and I was blown away and Patrick was like Duh. Where have you been?
0: (laughs) I know what this is, too. It's Robert Altman's film, The Long Goodbye. Also on my list.
1: And you want to... And again, remember, mine are in ascending order of Californianess. Got it. Um, Because Robert Altman worked in the film industry for quite a long time, uh, he brings a lot of baggage about what he actually thinks of California. And um, by taking this very New York figure, although I think in the original novel he's from San Francisco or something. You take uh, Philip Marlowe Philip Marlo, uh, as embodied by Elliot Gould and you sort of put him talk about fish out of water. He walks around California in a black suit and encounters all these classic Californian archetypes, uh, mostly revolving around LA and Malibu. And um, something's wrong and he really plays it out um, in this atmosphere of this sort of laid back hedonism of the 70s because I still remember his uh, he rents an apartment and the apartment next to him are these women who seem to always be staging orgies and weirdness and he gets along with them great but uh, something about What's rotten at the heart of the long goodbye that fuels the bad guys, is also sort of at the heart of the California Dream. Um, it also has one of the, I think one of the greatest endings. Yeah. Um, and one of the great, I'm not sure if it's the last line, but you know the line I'm yeah. talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's
0: pretty extraordinary. It's an amazing movie, and it was. It's so funny to me because I grew up in the '80s and. Elliot Gould was like a guy on sitcoms. Uh, he was on that ER sitcom that based friends. on the play. Um, he was on Friends in the 90s, and that's kind of what he, I knew him for, and it wasn't until I started to dig into movies of the 1970s that yeah, I was like, I career. holy shit, Elliot Gould. He made a lot of shit movies, too. I wrote about one. Check out Wiffs. Wiffs, I forgot about Wiffs. I wish I could forget about Wiffs. I'm thinking of one called... I think it's called Who? With a question mark? Is it's that... like him and a robot. Okay. There's
1: another film... Oh, I remember. It's called Spies with bullet holes between the letters, because I believe they were trying to trick you (laughs) into thinking this was sort of some psychic sequel to M.A.S.H., which
0: is the abbreviation. Um, Is Long Goodbye Elliot Gould's best performance and or movie?
1: That's hard to say. I know it's not whiffs. Um, (laughs) I'm a big fan... Oh, and this just occurred to me. They're both Robert Allman. Yeah. Um, Ring Lardner Jr. No, he wrote the screenplay. Um, It's uh, Richard Hooker. Richard Hooker wrote the book. And one of the main characters was supposed to have this very specific accent. And they were very upset because whoever was playing the character didn't do the accent. Altman was like, well, don't bother with that. (laughs) But not not only does MASH, I think, have a slightly better ensemble cast, but that means Elliot Gould has to share the screen with more people. Right. So that there isn't a seven-minute-long pause on the podcast. (laughs) I'm going to say it's a tie because I'm a big fan of MASH, specifically his performance in MASH. Sure, sure. But if anything, if you look at M.A.S.H. and you look at The Long Goodbye, that shows you his range. Because there aren't many characters who are more different.
0: I could almost argue for a third Altman-Gould collaboration. Oh. The Great California Split, speaking of California. Not only does it have California in the title,
1: but I would argue that that's less about California. Oh, it's
0: not. I'm just saying... more about having an addiction to gambling, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) which is um, the reason I can't revisit that movie. I love that movie, but I can't watch movies about out-of-control gamblers.
1: I came to that movie late, and I first saw it at the music box at a repertory screening, and I still cannot remember a film where the act of sitting through it makes you feel like you went through that weekend with those. When it's over, you want a shower and a nap.
0: Right. It's incredible. George Segal is another... He was on sitcoms and he was kind of a clown. And then you go back and you're roller like, holy coaster. shit. <laughs> roller Co- roller coaster has a lot of fans.
1: Why is that? <laughs> I'm not sure. Is it because a, of a sequence that was borrowed from Dirty Harry that back in the day we, we nicknamed Harry Buys a Hat?
0: <laughs> Maybe it's because of Sparks. which i didn't realize until i saw the documentary i was like oh i didn't even put it together that they were the band from roller coaster that's that's the film they chose
1: no i remember the heyday of george siegel because he too had some missteps like um the terminal man which isn't great and um oh it's on the tip of my tongue oh my parents went to see this with all their friends and Oh, it was. He made this film called A Touch of Class with Glenda Jackson.
0: I've heard of it, but and, I've never seen oh,
1: it. Oh, it was popular with middle class Italian American middle aged people. Let me tell you. Oh, that was the. Oh, did you see A Touch of Class? <laughs> it's so. It's so. And they couldn't say funny because it's not funny. Right. It's. I prefer Pete and Tilly. It's kind of the same thing. That's a now largely forgotten romantic comedy with Carol Burnett and Walter Matha.
0: Wow. No, I haven't seen
1: that one either. Um but um yeah, George Segal was the man. In fact, there was a big Oh, well, he was in um um It's Late, folks. Um, <laughs> here here it comes Okay. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Right. Right? And in a boatload. He had like a 10 year period where he was the guy. Yeah. Oh, um, not that it was a hit, but if you've never seen The Hot Rock, it's. Which I
0: have. It's, on your recommendation. It's.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah. That actually shows up on cable a lot, and it's really good. My mother took me to see that. Wow. Not knowing what it was not that it's dirtier. or anything right. I just don't know why she was interested in a heist movie <laughs> but uh, at the late lamented Rolling Meadows theater uh, for a dollar we went and we saw The Hot Rock and I just I sat there and I thought it was the best movie I'd ever seen it's really good and the premise is so clever because it's actually the book was written by that guy who used a pseudonym and I think the I actual the author backstory. is Donald Westlake Oh, wrote okay. novels under a different names. got it uh, Steve, Steve Martin isn't in it. Robert Redford's in it, right, and right. Zero Mostel is in it, and Paul Sand is in it. Shit!
0: Now I want to change one of my picks because you just said Donald Westlake, and I'm like, oh, I should have picked. I'm just double checking. I'm ninety-nine percent sure that it takes place in Los Angeles. It doesn't matter, I'm not gonna pick it, but point blank point blank, I should say, um, with Lee Marvin directed by John Borman.
1: And I may be wrong, but the main character in the hot rock is named Dortmunder, and I believe though they never made another Dortmunder movie, there are more Dortmunder books. Interesting. I have unlimited time now. <laughs> I'm gonna check that out because I would be interested to Sure. To read about the continuing adventures of this hapless career. <laughs>
0: um, so my pick, since I can't go with a long goodbye, I'll go with the other movie on my double feature pairing, which is which I would call La Noir, and I went with Double Indemnity. I didn't want to pick Sunset Boulevard because I was like, that's kind of on the nose. Yeah. And Double Indemnity is the one I'm a lot more familiar with because I show it pretty much every semester for film noir. There's this BFI infographic that charts the elements of film noir and which movies have the most elements. i like to see that. Double Indemnity is the only one that checks every single box. I can see that. So I always introduce it as, this is the noiriest noir ever made. Um, and I just marvel at how good movies used to be. <laughs> and
1: also, we're talking about the spirit of California. Sunset Boulevard gets to the heart of Hollywood,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but... There's an element in Double Indemnity that talks very seriously about moral ambiguity or perhaps more to the point, people who suffer from moral ambiguity Mm -hmm. in situations where there should be no ambiguity about what's going on. Um, I think that film, even if it wasn't as terrific
0: as it is, would still be remembered for Edward G. Robinson's performance. In my top five movie characters of all time, like there's, my favorite is still Marge Gunderson from Fargo. Snake Plissken would be up there, but my third one might be Edward G. Robinson in Double Indemnity. I just love him so much.
1: He's terrific. And the other night, I couldn't, <coughs> I couldn't sleep, and some cable station, without commercials, was showing Soylent Green. Okay. That's one of those. Universal films where they were doing stuff on the cheap and the lighting is bad and it's Soylent Green and the Omega Man and Earthquake and that whole strain. And then in the middle of it, there's this Edward G. Robinson performance that's like, imagine this in a better film Mm -hmm. or imagine this in a film where the entire thing was as good as what he's doing. Uh, Because he's the only goddamn thing to care about in that misbegotten thing. (laughs) It's, It's part of the Charlton Heston... I will submit to you that I am Jesus trilogy, which of course is Omega Man, Soylent Green, and Planet of the Age.
0: Okay, interesting. Um, he just Edward G. Robinson just showed up in some shitty movie I was watching from again going down this once upon a time in Hollywood rabbit hole. I was watching all these '60s movies. Jack Lemon has to pretend to be married to his wife's best friend
1: um not divorce italian style
0: no um
1: not how to
0: not how to murder your wife It's got like his name in the title good neighbor Sam good neighbor Sam thank you wow, good pull
1: good neighbor sam i've I've lamented I haven't lamented I have waxed nostalgic over the late lamented. ABC 330 movie yeah. yeah yeah. Good Neighbor Sam was on the 330 movie like every oh,
0: month jeez speaking of olive films I think they're the ones who put it out on Blu-ray uh, and Edward G. Robinson is like the owner of some dairy company that wants Jack Lemmon as the moral representation of the company and it's not a very good movie but uh, what was I talking about Double Indemnity is a good movie and
1: Edward G. Robinson plays the moral center right, in the film
0: right the dialogue is so good. It's one of those movies, that and Ball of Fire. Well, Lady Eve. All right, there's a bunch. Sometimes I watch Barbara Stanwyck, and I like Barbara Stanwyck, but I don't get the Barbara Stanwyck thing.
1: No, I I, I understand that. But I, then, I think I'm in that camp
0: too. Yeah, but then like I'll watch Lady Eve or Ball of Fire or Double Indemnity, and I'll be like, okay, I can see it. The other thing that makes
1: um, Double Indemnity very Californian is... Everything we see of Barbara Stanwyck's house speaks to a design aesthetic that still exists. Because when you drive around Hollywood and L.A., all those Spanish stucco-inspired rococo houses are still there. And hers is like, oh, I can see why they picked this. I think, well, I'm not sure. Obviously, the outside of it is real. The inside might be a set. But it's very California.
0: Yeah. All right, you're number one, Jay bones
1: Boy, I thought about this long and hard. And ages ago, I believe we recorded a whole podcast on this Okay,
0: film. it's very possible. We've done like 800 of these. I may be wrong. But it wasn't until I
1: moved here that I realized that bef- besides, like you said, checking a whole bunch of boxes for classic films, it also has something very profound to say about California. And that is Mike Nichols' film, The Graduate.
0: Oh, very nice. We did do a whole podcast on it. Because
1: as better minds than mine have suggested, (laughs) what Mike Nichols ultimately did was take a New York Jew in Dustin Hoffman and drop him into this environment that's uh, late 60s California, which couldn't be any different than New York, and that's why he insisted on Hoffman because in every scene, that stresses his difference with everyone mm-hmm. around him. In fact, you might look at Elizabeth Wilson and William Daniels and wonder who she had the affair with <laughs> because Dustin Hoffman is not the progeny of those two wasps. Are you ready? Feature attraction. Um, You know, it was just the 4th of July and TCM always shows 1776. Oh, God. William Daniels. And I missed... Uh, is it Boy Meets World? Yes. I've never seen an episode of that. Yeah. I understand the Mr. Feeny thing. Sure. But I missed that. Yeah. Uh, to me, William Daniels is Benjamin's father. Right. Um, and he's John Adams in okay. 1776. Okay. Um, do you want to tell me what all those years of study were for you got me i would think that after a few weeks that young man would want to take stock of himself well it's very pleasant to just float here in the pool i think i could do the whole movie um including my favorite exchange when william daniels says this whole thing seems pretty half-baked benjamin Oh, oh, no, it's fully it's baked. baked. It's an idea, I had.
0: <laughs> that was something my dad used to say all the time. He would always say, oh, no, it's fully baked. <laughs> he was so, the one who turned me on to that movie. And uh, uh, as Jan can tell you,
1: because not that this is the reason we got married, but we had very similar experiences. It showed up on the CBS Wednesday night movie when I was, like, in sixth grade. And Wednesday night, my parents would go out to dinner. So I'm alone in the house, and I'm watching The Graduate. And it's like speaking to me about, hey, I know you're 10, but watch
0: this.
1: (laughs) There's a much larger world than what you've been exposed to. Um, And I think that happened a lot, because I've asked you this before on the podcast. What year did Annie Hall come out? 77, I believe. Okay. Okay. I'm 15. Yeah. And I'm watching that, and either I'm a precocious kid or I'm not remembering, but the graduate uh, points to a larger world. And um, it's largely a world with moral ambiguity, speaking of the moral ambiguity. Right, right, right. And double indemnity. And um, obviously, we have what Benjamin decides to do at the end of the film, which we can debate is a good idea or a bad idea Hmm. and then of course the famous last shot that has been endlessly it's also um i believe bruce Surtees is the dp on the graduate i have to look it up i i think i'm right though and he captures something about california sunlight yeah that's very specific right because we moved here and the son is different. And now our listeners are saying, he's getting older. But then one of Jan's friends who lived in California for 10 years, moved back to Chicago, and now they're thinking about moving here for their retirement, Yeah, came to visit, and we went out to lunch. And I said, you guys lived here for a long time. Is this just me? Or And they said, no, 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 it is. Which I guess makes sense because it's a different the sun is different, <laughs> for instance, the the time of night when the sun is falling, yeah. dusk yeah, it's blinding here, worse than any any late afternoon in Chicago and and uh, again, I think it's Bruce Surtees. he captures elements of California sunlight that I had never seen presented in a film that way. I'm thinking of the Berkeley sequence, and I'm thinking about all the stuff around the pool.
0: Sure. It's, you know, there's no reason to fake shooting in California or L.A., uh, because this is where so many studios already have set up shops, so it's very easy for them to shoot here, and that's why a lot of movies were and are shot here. But the way movies are shot now, and I swear I'm not trying to just sneak in my movies are bad now, but like this sort of flat digital photography um all the fake backgrounds when somebody's standing on a balcony or driving a car or what it's where they're just shooting in a best buy parking lot in atlanta like on a green screen or whatever all the movies we're talking about are so clearly making use of california locations and capture what it looks like if that makes sense
1: and i know this because i'm guessing it's pasadena but i don't remember the original criterion collection laserdisc of the graduate featured a video essay by a young lady at the time who lived in the house next to the house the film company rented for benjamin's and all summer long she sat on her lawn watching them film it. And that's what the video essay is about. So the outside of the house is an actual house. They didn't build it. And I'm thinking it's Pasadena, but I might be wrong. And I don't think Criterion ever put out The Graduate on DVD.
0: They, uh, well, the Blu-ray now is Criterion. Is it? Yeah.
1: That means it's on a shelf in the other room. <laughs> I'm guessing that,
0: that probably that yeah. special feature would right. be ported over because yeah. it
1: was it was fascinating and well and well put together.
0: Yeah. Uh, my last pick, I'm calling California Epics, uh, and I picked another Robert Altman movie, and that is Shortcuts. Almost from, made my list. Yeah. Um, again, just a, it's a movie. It's a three-hour movie made up of short stories by Raymond Carver has an insane cast of stars telling lots of little stories and the way their lives intertwine. It's like if Crash was really good. Um, And it culminates in this earthquake. Uh, And again, there's some stuff during that earthquake where you're like, holy shit, did that just happen? Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. With Chris Penn. Um, (laughs) It's just wild.
1: Um, Shortcuts gets to because there's so many damn people who live here. Yeah. The randomness sure. of things yeah. that we're all in this place and we keep bumping into each other, but also and I've seen shortcuts a number of times. Um the sequence about the birthday cake mm-hmm. and the child mm-hmm. and that whole thing with the car accident mm-hmm. is just just devastating.
0: There's so much in the movie that's
1: and then there's other stuff
0: that's lighter. Right. The three guys fishing is kind of lighter, even but though they in, find in, a dead body. Yeah, until you get to that. But the Lily Tomlin and Tom Waits story is so sad. Um, who plays Laurie Singer's mom? Uh, oh. The I just singer. recently
1: um and... uh um, Wait.
0: Annie Ross. Yes, thank you, Annie Ross. Because... She was in Superman 3. <laughs> only weeks ago,
1: my favorite Halloween song is Halloween Spooks. Okay. By a 50s a cappella vocal group called Lambert, Hendrix, and Ross. Guess who Ross is? No was? kidding. Everything, and this is what shortcuts <laughs> is about. Everything <laughs> is connected. In fact, now that you mention it, is there a lighthearted sequence in Shortcuts?
0: I mean, some of it's lighthearted until it isn't. A lot, all of the Robert Downey Jr., Jennifer Jason Leigh, Lily Taylor, Chris Penn stuff is pretty lighthearted, and then all of a sudden it's not.
1: And I'm also thinking of, um, for a while, the film was notorious uh, for a scene with Julianne Moore. Julianne Moore, sure. which defines being fearless as an actor. God. Um it, it's it's an amazing film. Jack Lemon is in it. Yeah. Gives a fucking amazing monologue. Because sometimes I get confused and I think Jack Lemon is Keenan Wynn in Nashville.
0: Got it. Because okay. they're both waiting at hospitals. Right, right, right. I think Shortcuts gets overshadowed a little bit because the player came right before it and the player was so big and so Robert Altman is back and that's the movie that people talk about. And I think, I know Shortcuts is in the Criterion Collection. Um, I know people have seen it, but it doesn't, it's not often mentioned alongside Altman's best movies. And I think that has partly to do with the fact that he has so many goddamn good movies, but man, it's good.
1: I actually think if you held a gun to my head which I planted, which Patrick is doing right? <laughs> wait, wait put that gun um, away I think Shortcuts is the better film A, it's more ambitious but sometimes when I revisit it I find the player a little one note Sure that it Right it intends to do this and it does that very well um, I like The stuff I like best in The Player is the peripheral stuff. Right. The stuff that's floating around Griffin Mill, like Buck Henry pitching The Graduate 2
0: to return to The Graduate. It all comes together. Mrs.
1: Robinson has had a stroke. (laughs) He says that.
0: I know. I've tried to describe that scene lately to people when I'm talking about sequels that seem like horrible ideas. I think I was talking to Erica about Psycho 2 and Psycho Two is a great movie and a movie that I love, but on paper, it's the Graduate Two.
1: And again, you have you have changed your mind about this. Mm-hmm. Because I think you used to be more of my mind because I am not a fan of that film. Psycho two? I'm sorry. <laughs> it's late, folks. I love Psycho Two.
0: Psycho Two is great.
1: For I'm thinking of the remake. Oh, sure. Which you have newfound respect for and yes. like. Yes. I call it clouds and... Right. Cows.
0: Yes. And I'm not a fan. <laughs> no, Psycho 2 on paper is The Graduate 2.
1: Right, because... And I've said this before on the podcast. Years ago, Jake had some meetings, because my son is a screenwriter, and Jake told us what the gist of this meeting was. And I wish I had somehow invested in companies because I would have made a mint. Years and years ago, he said, all they're interested in is mining existing IP. And this is before the Tucson tsunami. (laughs) Um, Man, everything.
0: Oh, it's it's depressing.
1: Everything old is new again.
0: Uh, All right, your runner's up. Here are my runners up. All right.
1: In no particular order. Singing in the Rain. For how how that's the idealized Hollywood. Mm-hmm. That's the Hollywood everyone wishes existed. Sure. Um, Get Shorty. Oh which yeah. Explores this certain bottom feeding culture. But the the scene I like best in Get Shorty is when Danny DeVito has lunch at this place and Rene Russo explains how stars order things. Um, At restaurants. And then he leaves without eating anything, which is the punchline. Um, That movie's so good. My number eight is Sideways, for a number of reasons. Okay. I've also been told there's a scene or two that that were filmed in Oxnard, which is where I currently reside. Uh, Number seven is Blade Runner, because that's what L.A. is almost now. Right, yeah, right. So kudos, Ridley Scott. You (laughs) predicted... It just needs to rain a little bit more, <laughs> and we're there. Um, number six is drive. Yeah. Um, for Nicholas Winding Refn gets the film to sort of exude this LA stench. It's like he he's got the he knows the notes and the music. He's got the feel of the place. It's quite extraordinary, um, and a killer soundtrack. Uh, Number five, L.A. Confidential, because how can you not? Sure. The uh, history of uh, various abuses that the state has seen in terms of law and law enforcement and things. Uh, Number four is Bowfinger. Again, exploring what happens if your dreams in Hollywood don't come true. uh, You hatch a scheme. Number three, The Big Lebowski. Okay. For the the ultimate laid back right. California stereotype which actually exists um, one of my big beefs when I first got here was that customer service didn't seem to be as good because no one's in a hurry <laughs> and and I talked to Jake about this because it, he agreed I wasn't just making it up it's a slower pace <laughs> um, hey man there's a beverage here uh number two is the player. Sure. Uh again the downside of Hollywood and yeah. my number one was shortcuts for again capturing this this flavor of the zeitgeist, if yeah. I'm not mixing metaphor. Yeah.
0: Uh, my other uh, California double features. Um, the flip side of my to live and die in LA, LA crime was heat, obviously uh no surprise there la epics i picked shortcuts i could have picked magnolia which is a movie set in the valley paul thomas anderson makes movies about the valley a lot Uh, boogie nights is about life in the valley another great california movie um double indemnity long goodbye lost boys the fog for a different part of California not a lot of horror movies set in the Bay Area but The Fog is probably the best one and then a double feature that I didn't even mention which is my California romantic comedies I went with Valley Girl or Modern Romance hmm
1: hmm it's late yeah oh Albert Brooks oh
0: my god yeah
1: I love that movie to death. It's great. And it would never get made today. Of course not. It's, <laughs> it's so loose and so lumpy. Right. And it's about so many things. Um, he gets back to his apartment. He's stoned. I love my records. <laughs> uh, that whole thing with... George Kennedy filming the science right. fiction epic right. in the scene where they're dubbing in the sound effects.
0: Well, and that's part of what I like about the movie. We we named a lot of movies that are about making movies, but those tend to be about actors or directors. And I like that Modern Romance is about a guy who works in the film industry, uh, but uh, sort of below the line yeah. when he does sound. Um, There's a scene where they're dubbing things
1: using existing special effects track well that that's hulk screaming that's not hulk running (laughs) what do you what what do you think he's running on because they're going to Foley the footsteps what does it look like he's running on
0: space floor (laughs) isn't james l brooks in those scenes too he's
1: he's the director he's way too excited about this film (laughs) that he's making and brooks is there to bring him down and uh Ed, uh, edgar kennedy george kennedy proves what a great sport he is because he appears in the film within a film that looks miserable right and then he plays himself in right. the party scene right. where he's telling right. stories um it's a really interesting and all the hollywood stuff aside it's a very compelling romantic comedy yeah. about a certain type of relationship
0: yeah well thank you for doing this jb it was fun We pulled it together quickly. We did, because you see,
1: we're all on vacation.